Hi, everyone. Celine Gounder here. I'm the host of In Sickness and In Health. We really appreciate all our loyal listeners, and I'm hoping you can help us grow this community even more. If you like our podcast, tell a friend about it today. The bigger we can grow this community, the more episodes we can do, and the more ambitious our show can be. Thanks for listening. Now, on with the show. Welcome back to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about health and social justice. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This season, we're looking at gun violence in America. Well, a lot of times what we hear in the dialogue around gun violence prevention and policy in particular is that we can't get anything done in this country. Look at the state level. The extreme risk laws are a great example of how the states have really taken the issue and acted in a very responsible and progressive way. Because there was no you know, statewide training directive or any information published that said this is how you should carry out these orders, we're kind of making the rules up as we go on. I have had conversations, I've had some who kind of get borderline with me and, oh, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to enforce this. Uh, And like, really? Because it says if you willfully and wantonly neglect to protect someone, you know, you can be sued. On our last episode, we talked about red flag laws, extreme risk protection orders that allow authorities to temporarily remove guns from someone who's a threat to themselves or others. 17 states in the District of Columbia have passed these laws, but having a law in the books and how it works on the ground are two very different things. There is the continuous need to educate law enforcement and families that it is a tool to be used, because although many people voted for it, I think the vast majority of the public still does not understand how the extremist protection order can be a tool for their loved ones in crisis. On today's episode of In Sickness and in Health, we'll look at three different states and the challenges they've faced in rolling out their red flag laws. We're going to start in Illinois. Oh, Chicago. No, there's a whole state other than Chicago. This is Tammy Tunnel. She grew up, as she likes to say, downstate. Basically, it's what we refer to living in the cornfield, because once you get out of Chicago, you get down, we have a whole lot of cornfield in the middle of the state. Tammy says, culturally and politically speaking, Chicago and the Collar Counties, the most heavily populated parts of the state, are a completely different animal from downstate Illinois. While the Chicago area is known for being diverse, democratic. When you hit downstate, you get more of a Republican flavor. And the joke about that is when they say downstate, they mean south of I-80, which is very far north. Tammy works as the downstate coordinator for the Illinois Council Against Handgun Violence and spends her days traveling all over downstate talking to residents about gun safety. More often than not, she's talking to people with political views very different from her own. It's really a lot of conservatives, a lot of Republicans. My politics are conservative. I'm a hunter. I like to collect my firearms. Uh, I may be part of a gun club or I may be a NASCAR fan or somebody that really takes their freedom seriously. She explains the new law and how it works. Yes, it helps keep guns temporarily out of reach for people who are going through a crisis. And no, it does not infringe on your Second Amendment rights. But Tammy, as you might imagine, has her work cut out for her. She says there's this perception people downstate have that Chicago and the surrounding counties get more money, more services, and more attention than downstate. 
and because Chicago and the collar counties have so many people. Usually when the state goes Democratic, it's the Chicago area that voted Democratic where everybody else might have voted Republican. And you have all these people downstate yelling, but, you know, I didn't vote Democratic. This has led many residents downstate to start the Kick Chicago Out movement. Let's kick Chicago out and make them be their own state. A House resolution in Illinois is proposing to separate the city of Chicago. Pushing a long shot plan to kick Chicago out of the state. It's something Congress has not done since Lincoln himself was in the White House. They're calling it the West Virginia model. I went to the rally. Earlier this year, seven representatives in the state legislature filed a bill asking the U.S. Congress to recognize Chicago as the 51st state. Tammy says the momentum for the Kick Chicago Out campaign ebbs and flows over the years. But recently, there's a related movement gaining traction downstate. The Sanctuary County movement. But not the one you're thinking of. Cities and counties around the country have declared themselves sanctuaries for undocumented immigrants, limiting their cooperation with federal immigration policies. But now Second Amendment advocates are taking a page from the same playbook. Becoming gun sanctuary, that's the norm for several counties in Illinois like Jasper, Jefferson, Effingham. A Metro East County is the latest place in Illinois to become a sanctuary for gun owners. Most are rural counties and cities. We've been covering this movement for weeks and most of the officials say they're trying to send a message to state lawmakers. Let me explain. The state of Illinois passed its red flag law in 2018. Immediately after that, 62 out of 103 counties in Illinois proposed and in some cases signed non-binding resolutions stating they weren't going to enforce any state laws they thought infringed on Second Amendment rights. So many states became gun counties. You know, we're a sanctuary. We're a gun county sanctuary. We're not going to put up with this. If Chicago is driving, you know, the politics and Chicago is making these things happen and you know, Chicago is the reason we have the firearm restraining order. Not true. That was an effort that the legislature did, and it wasn't just Chicago. So I just think that we like to blame lots of things on Chicago. You may be asking, if the Illinois law already passed, why is Tammy traveling all over downstate, trying to convince people it's a good law? A little background here. Illinois is a state notorious for gridlock known for not getting things done. Illinois law passed with a veto-proof majority, but it passed at the end of the legislative session. There was no plan for training police officers who may be serving these orders, no plan for how to get the word out in the community that the law was in place, nothing. This meant that by the time the law was set to go into effect on January 1st, 2019, it was up to the people on the ground judges, law enforcement officers, advocates, to muddle through on their own. You know, judges were skeptical. You know, they were very reluctant to, to issue these orders early on because of the potential liability of sending officers to that person's door um, and having that, that situation escalate into potentially a shootout. This is Peter Contos. He works with Tammy at the Illinois Council Against Handgun Violence. When the law went into effect, many in law enforcement raised their own red flags about it saying there was little guidance and that it posed risks to those whose job it was to enforce it. You know, if a judge says, hey, can you go serve this warrant? And, you know, me being some law enforcement agency official, um, if I don't know, you know, what this order is or how, how it's best served, then I'm, you know, you put me in a very difficult position. 
Studies show that domestic or intimate partner violence situations are some of the most dangerous law enforcement officers encounter in the line of duty. Serving an extreme risk protection order puts police officers in similarly volatile situations, situations that can easily escalate. The irony, of course, is that this only highlights why it might be necessary to serve the order of protection in the first place. As part of her outreach work, Tammy often brings up a domestic violence case from the 1990s, a case in Effingham County, which is, not coincidentally, a self-declared gun sanctuary county. It's called Callaway versus Kinklar. Kinklar was the sheriff. The woman had gotten an order of protection against her. I, I don't know if he was her ex-husband yet, but they were separated. They had a child in common, and she, she got an order of protection. She had a domestic violence restraining order against him. One day, he called her on the phone and began threatening her. He said, I'm going to kill our daughter, I'm going to kill your dad. And she called and made the complaint. They sent a sheriff out by the house, so a sheriff's deputy went out to check the house. But instead of knocking on the door... Kind of drove into the driveway, took a look, and left. Because they didn't want to wake anybody up because it was early in the morning. The man had been watching from inside the house. And when he saw the sheriff's deputy drive away... He went to the restaurant where his wife worked and kidnapped her at gunpoint. Eventually, the police caught up with them. The man shot himself. The woman was able to get away safely, but she sued the police department for the distress and trauma she'd been put through. And she won. The courts found the police department liable for failing to protect her. So when I'm talking to people in that area, it's like, hey, do you remember that case? especially to people Tammy thinks might be hesitant to serve these extreme risk protection orders, just as some were reluctant to serve domestic violence restraining orders back in the day. You don't want to be that person. You really don't want to be that case. Advocates like Tammy have taken on the role of helping law enforcement and local courts figure out how to carry out Illinois' red flag law and of helping the community at large understand it. They look at me skeptically. I think they're scared of me sometimes. When they, oh, okay, it's that crazy lady who, you know, talks about gun violence. But Tammy knows all too well from her 30-plus year career working in domestic violence before this that it takes time and hard work for laws like this to seem commonplace, routine. It's really hard. I mean, if you look at the state of Illinois, it's a large state. So, and, you know, there's only, the, our team has three of us. Sometimes I get tired of hearing myself talk. It's okay. This is the umpteenth time I've said this. Getting those volunteers on the ground who can then keep spreading the word has been a huge help. We're not done yet, but we're on our way. We're going to leave Illinois for now and travel east to Maryland. Many of us in Maryland refer to it as Little America because in many ways, we represent a lot of what the United States looks like. There's a tremendous amount of diversity. This is Shannon Frateroli, an associate professor at the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Policy and Research. In terms of gun ownership, we have um, rural communities where gun ownership is quite high. We have urban communities where gun ownership is quite low. Maryland has been on the leading edge of trying to strike a balance between the need to protect the rights of gun owners in the state and the need to keep people safe from the dangers and risks of guns. 
Maryland, like many states, wound up passing an extremist protection order law after Parkland. Maryland passed its red flag law the summer of 2018. But the law didn't go into effect until October. And in the meantime, there was another tragedy, this time at home in Maryland. We're coming on the air with breaking news, a shooting this afternoon in Annapolis, Maryland. A gunman opened fire at the offices of the Capitol Gazette in Annapolis. Five reporters lost their lives. A gunman who'd made threats against the Gazette before and who had a history of domestic violence, who might have been stopped if Maryland's red flag law had been in effect at the time. The media coverage of the tragedy also covered the new law, and many advocates believe that media coverage helped educate residents across the state. It's part of the reason why rollout has gone so well in Maryland. But the law also got backing from important leaders in the state. Sheriff Popkin is really, from my perspective, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this, Sheriff Popkin is the reason that we have a vibrant infrastructure in place that is making use of our extreme risk law. The sheriff was involved in the legislative process to craft the law, ensuring it made sense for law enforcement. And after the law was passed... Sheriff Popkin developed a training and went all over the state of Maryland and offered training to law enforcement um, in person to make sure that they were ready for the rollout of this law. Shannon says these efforts, spearheaded by a credible and respected figure in law enforcement, were key to getting police officers on board. I've heard from law enforcement who will say, I actually have people coming back to me and saying, you know, I want to apologize. I know I was terrible to you when you served that order. And I know I said a lot of things and I called you a lot of names. Um, But I'm six months out from that incident and I'm looking back now and I'm so glad that you uh, stuck with me and that you intervened in the way that you did because I was in a bad place then. But six months later, I'm in a different place. So I'm hearing from law enforcement who are saying, you know, for the first time in my career, I feel like I'm not just cleaning up a mess. They don't have to wait for tragedy to strike before taking preventive, life-saving action. Red flag laws in Maryland and elsewhere are relatively new. But as more data is gathered, researchers like Shannon are looking across different states to understand how they're being used in the real world and what this can tell us about how to best implement them going forward. I actually am working with the state of Washington and Seattle King County and uh, have spent a lot of time with the data that have come out of that state. In one of these cases, folks call the police to complain about one particular neighbor, who is often belligerent and hostile. One day... They got a call from a neighbor saying that um, this person had sort of escalated, um, you know, these interactions by coming out into the yard with a shotgun, um, pointing that shotgun at neighbors and shooting the gun into the air. Police arrived at the scene, talked to the neighbor who called, talked to the person the complaint was about, and verified that he indeed had a gun. And they decided at that point in time that the fact that this person had decided in the course of the argument to, you know, take out a gun and to shoot it in the air was enough information for law enforcement to say, you know, we're going to intervene in a different way. The police officers went to court. They filed a petition. The judge found the evidence credible and issued an order. There are also cases when it's not the police filing for a petition, 
but a family member. A woman came before the court and um, expressed concern about her husband of many years, who was increasingly upset and concerned. Uh, He had lost his job, was having trouble finding work, um, trouble supporting the family, and was drinking more. He had purchased a gun and had been quite explicit that he had purchased the gun because he didn't see a point in continuing to live. The woman filed a petition herself. She was able to get the gun out of the home and help her husband through his crisis. Having a community leader standing up for the law, as Sheriff Popkin did in Maryland, is key to getting law enforcement on board, knowledgeable about how to request these petitions and comfortable serving the orders of protection. In Washington state, that community leader has been Kimberly Wyatt. Good morning, Chairman Graham, Ranking Member Feinstein, and distinguished members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Kim Wyatt is a senior deputy prosecuting attorney with the King County Prosecutor's Office. Earlier this year, Kim testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee about a proposed national red flag law. In her testimony, she shared stories about the impact of Washington state's red flag law. In Washington, as in Illinois and Maryland, there's been a long-standing political and cultural divide between urban and rural, between Seattle King County, west of the Cascade Mountains, which leans more progressive, and east of the Cascades, which tends to be more conservative. But she's quick to point out that Washington's red flag law... It passed with almost 70 percent of the vote statewide, so that obviously encompasses many areas in eastern Washington as well. Kim is part of a regional unit that assists law enforcement to carry out their duties under the red flag law. She works closely with the police academy to train officers on how to serve the extreme risk protection orders. And she works with advocates who help family members navigate the petition process. Red flag laws are designed to look for the cracks people might fall through. Part of Kim's job is to look for those cracks and close them. An individual was taken to a local hospital by his girlfriend who said that he was having fantasies of wanting to commit a mass shooting that would outdo Las Vegas. And for whatever reason, this individual did not meet the civil commitment requirements. The situation didn't quite meet the requirements for the individual to be committed under the state's Involuntary Commitment Act. But there's still concern from loved ones that somebody's in a crisis and has access to firearms. In the past, there wouldn't have been much law enforcement could do. But now that Washington had a red flag law and police officers were aware of it. Law enforcement was able in that particular case to go in and also get an extremist protection order and secure the firearms that we knew that individual had. In her Senate testimony, Kim talked about a high profile incident that took place last year. In May of 2018, law enforcement in King County received a report about a student. This was a university student that was making threats to kill other students. Specifically, he stated, I could just kill you all. Would it be easy? It would be easy to kill everybody. And then he went on to describe what firearms he would use to kill them. Law enforcement was able to take immediate action. They went to court, requested an extreme risk protection order, and secured the firearm. Eventually, the student in this incident was charged, but the red flag law restricted his access to guns before criminal charges could be filed, likely preventing a tragedy. Besides helping law enforcement figure out when and how to petition for an Extreme Risk Protection Order, or ERPO, Kim works closely with families to do the same. 
The vast majority have been filed by law enforcement, but there's been only a couple, I think two in 2018 in King County that were filed by family members. So why aren't more family members petitioning for ERPOs? Are people afraid that they're going to basically piss off a family member? I think that is part of the issue, that sometimes it's maybe not in their best interest to be the actual petitioner, but to allow law enforcement to kind of step in the shoes of that family member and to take on that burden and petition with the source of information coming from the family. I think the bigger issue that I know of is that Families don't understand that this is an option. When, you know, our law passed, there was no money for implementation. There was no statewide campaign or training for law enforcement that was done or public service announcements. I guess one question I have is, why does it matter who can petition for an ERPO? Because if if you could just go to law enforcement and then let them petition for an ERPO, is there a specific reason family or healthcare providers or others should have that ability as well? Well, I just think sometimes, you know, folks that may want to petition or have sources of information may not have the best relationship with law enforcement or there could be a mistrust of the system. So I think anytime we can create more points of access or entry and availability, so, you know, training clergy, training school counselors, training medical providers, other sources of information where they can learn about this law, I think is really important. And where exactly can someone get information about red flag laws and other resources for gun safety and suicide prevention? You might be surprised. That's next time on In Sickness and in Health. For more information about extreme risk protection orders, how they work, and how to implement them, check out the Johns Hopkins website, americanhealth.jhu.edu slash implement ERPO. If someone you know is in crisis or thinking of hurting themselves, Do not leave them alone. Remove any firearms, alcohol, drugs, or sharp objects that could be used in a suicide attempt. Take them to an emergency room or seek help from a medical or mental health professional. Call the U.S. National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-TALK. That's 800-273-8255. Or text the crisis text line at 741-741. Another resource for LGBTQ youth is the Trevor Project's Lifeline at 866-488-7386. Today's episode of In Sickness and In Health was produced by Virginia Laura and me. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. Additional music by the Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend about it today. And if you haven't already done so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. You can learn more about this podcast and how to engage with us on social media at insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. That's insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is In Sickness and in Health.